You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. A little bit of a, an experiment here as we begin. And if you would, if you have your cell phone with you, you can take it out. And I want to ask you a question. If, if you're going to associate the Christian faith with one word, what would that word be? I'm actually very interested in knowing that. And if you would, if you would just take and think of that word and text it to, uh, you'll find the number all over in your bulletin. It's 888-410-5007. Just text that one word to that number. If you're going to associate the Christian faith with one word, what would it be? Of course, there's going to be several answers that people have. Some might come up with an answer that's not even kind. They might say that they associate uh, the Christian faith primarily with hypocrisy or judgment. For others, the, the Christian faith is about love and acceptance. Some might associate the Christian faith with Jesus or his, his death. Some might say something a bit more theological and say forgiveness or mercy or grace. I think if I was doing this little experiment and I was texting in your position, I was texting the word to that number, I would text the word grace. And so for the next little while here, I want to just talk about that word grace and specifically what the Bible teaches about it. I said uh, that the word was a bit uh, more theological than others. I should also say that the word is extremely practical. But to get to the, the practical, we need to understand what the word means, how the New Testament writers specifically use the word, what it means. And then when we get to that, we'll talk about why it matters. Now, I, I don't know about you, but Christians seem to throw that word grace around a lot. But just because it's, it's talked about doesn't mean that we all understand what it means. And then it doesn't mean that we all naturally understand why it matters. If we had time, we would go into to some of the, the core values of, of different churches and, and look at their statements on grace and, and explain just, and, and just show how the word is, is convoluted. It, it doesn't uh, help those statements don't seem to help our understanding of grace in a lot of in a lot of ways. The, the word grace matters. Let me just read several verses here to, to get us all kind of on the same page when it comes to grace and, and the fact that we're throwing the word around a lot. It, it's often uh, a word, like I said, that's misunderstood. It, it's it's misapplied. So it's helpful to to see it in the scriptures. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 15, we have what's called the, the Jerusalem Council. There were uh, some people that were in the church teaching that unless you got circumcised according to the custom of Moses, that people couldn't be saved. And the, the leadership at the time had to deal with this. They were discussing this. And after much uh, debate, Peter began to talk and he makes this statement in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here, the, the we 
is referring to the Jews, that they are the Gentiles, and he's saying both are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 18, we have a, a record of Apollos who came to Ephesus. He spoke boldly there in the synagogue. He left Ephesus. He went to Achaia, and when he arrived there, we have this statement in verse 27. When he, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had believed. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the, the very greeting of the book, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice there that the, the him who called you is God himself. God called them in the grace of Christ. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we read that, that we have the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read, By grace you have been saved. 2 Timothy 1, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace. In Titus, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. In, that was Titus chapter 2. In, in Titus chapter 3, we are justified by his grace. These are just a, a few of the, the many passages concerning uh, grace in the New Testament. In all of these passages, we see that there is a, a great relationship between God's grace that is granted and our salvation. So this word is, is extremely important, isn't it? If the Bible says that it is by grace we are saved, it's important for us to get a, a handle on the word. Some people might say that the, the main theme of the New Testament is salvation in Christ. I, I would agree, but I would also say that the New Testament centers around the theme of grace. Let me see if I can illustrate that. In the time the, the books of the New Testament were written, there was a, a way in which people traditionally wrote letters. The opening greeting of a letter was the word hail. But in Paul's letters, he invented a, a new style of writing and opened his letters by saying grace and peace or grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. It was, it was a, a prayer in effect for those who would read the letter. Not only did the, the grace of God in the life of Paul lead him to create a new way of opening his letters, but it, all, it changed the way that he ended them. In the place of the traditional farewell at the end of the letter, Paul ends with a, a further prayer that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ or the grace may be with them. Second Peter, uh, Peter takes on this theme to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation uh, John ends by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. The entire New Testament is drenched in the concept of grace. The, the writers both start by talking about it and end by talking about it. The, the theme may very well be uh, salvation in the New Testament, but salvation is of God's grace from first to last, from start to 
to finish. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, a verse we mentioned just a moment ago, the, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. And then in the first chapter of Ephesians, we read this phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the end for which God saves us, to the praise of his glorious grace. From first to last, salvation is about grace. One theologian, uh, J.I. Packer, said that the concept of grace is the key that unlocks the entire New Testament. And then he goes on to say that it's the only key that does so. This is why so many people find the Bible so difficult, I'm convinced. Why it takes people who are very learned in a lot of ways, and it, it just frustrates and confounds them. It, it's why people so easily and quickly misunderstand the the New Testament, they misinterpret it. So many people, even people who are deeply religious, read the book if it was merely for moral value. As if Jesus were merely a, a wise teacher that we could learn great lessons from and they really don't make heads or tails from the book itself. Every single book in the New Testament is part of a whole. Whether we are dealing with it historically or theologically, it, if one doesn't understand the concept of grace, the meaning of the text is lost. And this is the great tragedy I am convinced of today, that the meaning of grace is really not appreciated in a lot of Christian circles. For the last hundred years or so, the subject has been neglected by some groups. It has handled, been handled very poorly by other groups. In the centrality and the importance of it that so many in our past fought so hard to pass on has almost vanished in the life of some groups. Of course, the word itself hasn't vanished. The, the word is used as part of our vocabulary all the time. We sing songs with the word grace and we know it to be important. We just don't understand why it is important. One of the if not the, the greatest need today in our churches across America is a renewed awareness of what the grace of God really is. Simply put, the great grace is God's undeserved favor, his unmerited love. But, but it's actually quite a, a complex word for, for many reasons. But let me just see if I can illustrate one of them. The problem for us when it comes to uh, understanding grace is, is I, don't, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Matrix or not, but if you have, you would know that the plot is, is somewhat complicated. It's difficult to explain. It was a movie that really prompted a lot of theological conversations. In the movie, one of the, the characters named Morpheus asked a question. He asked this, and I quote, have you ever had a dream that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake up from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? It's an interesting question. Well, the world that we're living in says that performance makes you who you are. We, we've been taught this since we were little kids. And if you're still a kid, chances are this is what you're still being taught. And if you're an adult, chances are life still revolves around performance. 
When we were children, we heard this message and charts on the wall that outlined the chores that we were supposed to do on days. It was emphasized by report cards, standardized tests, music recitals, banquets held for athletic achievements, and the list goes on and on. Then you grow up and you, and you start a job that you got, no doubt, somewhat by your performance on some level, and you hear this message from your boss, performance, performance, performance. The church isn't immune. When I was growing up, the church that I was in had a plaque on the wall showing how many baptisms we had compared to other churches in our association. Or perhaps we see how one church's giving stacks up compared to, to other churches in your same denomination. In our world, performance seems to matter. Think about the, just the TV ads that, were, that are out there that we listen to, that come into our houses, performance dominates our view of reality. A reality that says, in the end, I am what I am because of what I do. Or, I am what I am. I think we're back. But the Bible turns this performance-based culture on its head. This is the reason that we have such a, a great difficulty when it comes to grace. We almost can't comprehend it. When Neo in the movie Matrix was told that the world that he was living in was just an illusion, that, that in reality the, the world had been taken over by machines who were just keeping him alive in a dream state to be a, a power source was unimaginable to him. The reality of grace is like that. Our false reality says, I am what I am because of what I have done. I am what I am because of what I can accomplish. I am what I am because of something that happened, has happened in my past. I am what I am because of some failure that has characterized my life. But Paul says, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. In other words, he's saying that it is God that gives to you what makes you who you are. What matters most in this short life that we have here on earth is not anything that we can do or what we have done, but it is what God has chosen to do through you in Jesus Christ. In the book of Jonah, the prophet runs and wants to get away from God. He, he runs from Nineveh and he boards a ship going the other direction and a, a fierce storm comes up and Jonah knows that if he stays on that ship, he places everybody's life in danger on that ship and he doesn't want to do that. So he tells the crew that, that they need to hurl him overboard. Finally, the crew does that and the sea becomes calm. Jonah, on the other hand, is swallowed by a great fish and he's in there three days. And finally, Jonah, as he's in that fish, he prays to the Lord and the last words that he says in that prayer before the fish spits him up on dry land are this, salvation belongs to the Lord. It took Jonah a long time, and Jonah wasn't all the way there yet, but he was starting to wake up to the idea of grace. All the way that the Ninevites, they don't deserve God's favor. They don't deserve this. He was thinking in a performance-based way. And as he's in this fish, he starts to, to wake up to this idea. And it took a long time, and, and Jonah wasn't he wasn't there. He, he obviously didn't get it, but he, he said that, that salvation didn't depend on who you are or if you have uh, the law, but that salvation was of God. And, and God's grace 
God's mercy could even come to a, a pagan city if God so chose. A lesson that Jonah needed to learn is that everything concerning salvation from start to finish is a gift that God has planned and secured. Human-centered religion says what goes around comes around, or God helps those who helps themselves. But those are, are lies. The, the gospel of grace is, is found in the page of Scripture is, is far different than that. Yes, there's a, there's a tremendous paradox and that is, there's, there's mystery here because it is by God's grace that we get what somebody else paid for. What was secured by somebody else, we reap that benefit. When we're talking about grace, we're talking about, we're saying that, that God helps those who can't help themselves who can't possibly help themselves. In fact, God helps them when they don't even want them to help, don't even want him to help them. A few years ago, there was a, a video of Joel Osteen and his wife standing on stage. And his wife was standing by her husband and she says this to the audience, I quote, realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. Do good for your own self. Do it because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Now, of course, that is false teaching. What she's saying is that, that everything we do, even the worship of God, we do to make ourselves happy primarily because that is what makes God happy. It's saying that God, in essence, exists to serve us, our purpose. The, the purpose of God is to make us happy. But that shouldn't surprise us. This is what has, has come out from them over and over and again. But if you get past the, the prosperity gospel, the idolatry there for a moment, I, I want you to notice something else about that statement. Here's a person that, that really doesn't understand the concept of grace. Her, her theology is all about performance. We go to church, we worship, we do these things because it makes you happy. If we do this, then the end result is that. If you perform in this way, this is the benefit that you're going to get. That isn't grace, but a perversion of it. Let me just spend a couple more minutes outlining what grace isn't, and then we'll get to, to what it is. First, uh, grace is not a approval. Grace that the Bible speaks of does not tell us that we are in some way good enough for God, that God loves us and cares for us and approves of everything about us. This view of grace would totally downplay sin. It never calls one to change their life. This is the, the view that Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's a, a grace without any, uh, any growth or change. This is the, the grace that says we can come to God just how we are and we can stay there once we get there. There, there are a couple things in error here. Grace then becomes on our terms. God is showing love to us, not us coming to him. Also, the, the grace the Bible speaks of is always in terms of 
growth. We mentioned this before. Peter exhorts his readers to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But cheap grace mocks God's holiness. The the God of the Bible says that we are to be holy because he is holy. He sets a, a standard that's impossible for us to achieve because we are weak and frail. We are so tainted by sin. We are inclined to sin. But we need God. He is our only refuge, our only hope, because we cannot do it on our own. But cheap grace says we don't need God but that God will just accept us the way that we are. He's satisfied with us the way that we are, but that isn't grace. It's a a cheap scam for people who want salvation on their own terms. They want heaven, they want eternal life, and they don't want to worry about hell, but at the same time, they want to keep their own lifestyle and they hold their sinfulness dear. They don't want to let God shape and grow them. Grace is not approval, And it's also something that cannot be earned. Some people view salvation as somewhat of a a bait and switch. On one hand, salvation is by grace. It's a free gift. And then once they're there, all sorts of rules and regulations and requirements come into play. Things that that must be kept in order to remain in a, a right state with God. Yes, salvation is by God's grace, but to actually get into favor with him, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. You see how it hides behind the label of grace? But really, it isn't grace at all. The Bible is clear that we cannot work hard enough to earn God's love or his favor. The more we try to to work toward it, the more we fail. This is really the the opposite of cheap grace. It, It adds effort and and earning to God's already finished work. It's grace with strings attached, and that isn't really grace at all. So so what is grace, and and how can we understand it where it's not approval or cheap grace, it's not a a bait and switch, where it's actually an efforts-based system? I think that seeing it this way, that God's acceptance of us is given freely at Christ's expense. I think that's a a good definition. God's acceptance of us is given freely at Christ's expense. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, grace means God's love in action towards people who merit or deserve the opposite of love. Grace means that God is moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. I like that. God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Here's the next question. How did God move heaven and earth to save sinners? Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter two for a few minutes here. If you want to to turn there, it might be helpful. The, The fact is that Sinners can do nothing to save themselves. In reconciliation, Christ bridged the gap between God and sinners. He he reconciled God with sinners. He took once people who are, are God and sinners, enemies of one another, and he made them friends. Why did he do that? I, I want you to, for a moment, at least just notice and really pay attention to verse four. 
in Ephesians chapter 2, but I'm going to read it all in, in context here. I, I want you to see the, the first side, the, the depravity side of things before we see the grace side on the other side. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just think about these verses for just a moment. So uh, the Bible says, well, we were dead in our sins, living according to the, the passions of our flesh. It's a, a helpless and pitiful state. Well, we were in this, this state of rebellion against God. Well, we were fulfilling the, our own desires, not giving a, a thought about him and all the time storing up wrath. It says children of wrath. The, the wages of sin is, is death. The, the earning for sin is God's wrath. This is the situation that Paul is describing. It's hopeless. It's pitiful. And then, in, and then you find those almost breathtaking words. But God. But God intervened. When we were objects of God's wrath by our own doing, he chose to get involved on our behalf. How do you explain that kind of love? I mean, what words in the English language can you possibly string together to express the love that God has for us that he would take hopeless and miserable people who are doing the, the will of the devil, who are following the ways of the world, who love their own sin, who are constantly living in disobedience to every command that he has commanded. How do you explain the love that God has for us that he would take and intervene for us while we were in that state? I hope you're catching how amazing those two words are. In, in reading this chapter, the, the first three verses are, are depressing. We catch a glimpse of our own depravity, how evil we are. And then we read two words in, in verse four that, that give us hope. But God, in other words, God is going to move heaven and earth to help those who cannot help themselves. And the question then becomes, who else? Who else could intervene on my behalf? And the answer is no one. 
It would take someone that could literally move heaven and earth to save sinners from the, the predicament that they are in. But God. Then you keep reading in the verse. And now here Paul is trying to express why God has done that. Why he intervened on our behalf. Why would God do such a thing? He doesn't have to. He is just. That means that God could give people what they deserve right in this moment. Why is he being so patient with you? Listen to his explanation. And we do this. We can put ourselves in there too, for instance, in verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy toward Colt, toward Dave, toward, put your own name in there. How is this for a reason, though? While we were dead in our sins, he intervened. He moved heaven and earth to save sinners. Why? The answer, he was merciful, right? He was rich in mercy. What kind of reason is that? It isn't a reason based on us. It, isn't, it is based on who God is. Not only is God intervening on our behalf, but the Bible says here that he is very merciful. Mercy is simply not getting what you deserve. So Paul has just said that we are objects of God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath because of our sin. So the due penalty for our sin, what we deserve is wrath. And we learn here that this same God that doles out wrath, who gives to each person what they do, for what they do is just, we learn that this God is also rich. He is wealthy. He is wealthy in what? He is wealthy in not giving people what they deserve. This is who we need to help us, isn't it? Look at the next statement. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Here's the reason. God is intervening on our behalf because of the great love that he has loved us with. Again, you can insert your own name in there if it helps. But think about this. The, the kind of love it would take to love somebody that hated you. That, that constantly lived in a way that, that showed contempt for your very existence. This is what he's saying. The great love that, that has, it has to be a pretty great love for God to love sinners who constantly are living according to the passions of their own flesh who don't care about him. They're following the, the course of the world. It has to be a pretty great love, doesn't it? Just think about that for a moment. This love that, that God has for sinners. That, that God would, would take and intervene. He would move heaven and hell for for sinners, he would send his own son. But just notice the, the rest of that text. It, it makes it so clear. God did this not based on anything that we have done. It is by God's grace and over and over in, that, in those verses. Not so that 
you could boast. You, you can't boast about this because you did nothing. This is all the work of God. He has done these things for you. He has accomplished this for you. This is not by works. This is not of your own doing. Over and over, we read these statements. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You, from start to finish, this is what God has done. This is what God has accomplishing in you, not because of any inherent worth in yourself, but because God is rich in mercy. This is so unlike any other God of any other religion. God of, of other religions are, are rich in their own existence. They're, they're pointing to their selves. They're, they're thinking about this. They don't become flesh to, to live among those people that they will eventually, that he will eventually die for. Grace is the undeserved favor of God in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And the, the question is, is do we recognize that or, or not? Do, do we recognize that, that first, we are sinners, that, that we are or people that, that have sinned against an all-holy God and that we deserve his, his wrath, that we are dead in our own sins, that we are by nature, by our own choice, objects of God's wrath? Do we recognize that God has every right to dole out justice on us right now, but we also recognize that God is, is merciful. He's, he's patient with us. He's, he's, he's patient with us, wanting us all to, to recognize the, the truth, to come to the truth of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to recognize that, that Jesus came to save sinners such as you and, and I. to recognize that our only hope is to put our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Because where we earned nothing but death for our, the wages of our life, he's earned life on our account. Jesus Christ was, was perfect. He lived perfectly. And the wages of his life was life. And if we would place our faith and trust in him, his obedience could become ours. His righteousness, his perfect status before him and God, that could be ours. We could rightly be called children of God. His love would be doled out on us. And our sin and our shame would be taken care of and dealt with on the cross and cast us into the bottom of the deepest ocean as far as the east is from the west. My friends, Recognize that we did nothing to deserve what Christ has done for us. And our response is to totally trust him, to put our, our faith and trust in him. It's like, I was watching uh, America's Funniest Home Videos last night with, with Silas, and uh, this guy was gonna go on a, he was going to go for a, a jump out of a plane. He was going to skydive. And 
they were talking to him before he went and they're like, are you going to go? I, I think you're ready, you know? And he's like, yes, I drove a long way. I'm going to do this. And he was really talking really big. And, and he gets up in the plane and he, and he just freaks out. It was, it was funny. He, he just, he couldn't go. And, and the guy that was with him, that was, that was hooked onto him, was really trying to almost push him out the plane. And he was doing everything he could to, to resist. He, he would not go. He would not go because he just would not trust that, that parachute. He wouldn't trust his, the, the guy that, that, that was supposed to, to man all this. He wouldn't trust it. He, he thought he was going to die. He said it was the scariest thing that he'd ever, ever done. He gets down on the ground and these guys start talking to him. And they start telling him, you, you can really, you can trust the parachute. You can trust it. And they give him all these reasons. And the next thing we know, he's back up on the plane. And he says, what you guys have, have told me has, has really made a difference. I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to jump out of the plane. And he, and he gets up there and he, he doesn't waver. He, he walks toward, with the guy tied to him, he's, he's walking toward the, the entrance of the, the plane, the, the exit of the, the plane. And he goes and, and they jump out of the plane. And he gets to the ground and he says, this was the greatest experience of my entire life. You know, before he gets to the, the plane, he didn't jump out. He said, that was the scariest thing I've ever dealt with. And then he gets to the ground after trusting in the, the parachute to save his life. He, he trusts it and he, and he says, this was the greatest thing that I'd ever done. Jesus is our parachute. You see, we recognize spiritually we're headed to the ground. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're, we're objects of wrath. We're, we're on our way to the ground. And it's almost as if God is, is gracious with us and keeps moving the, the ground down and, and letting us free fall longer. But the question is, is, is how far do you have to, to fall? Trust the parachute, cling to it. It's your only hope to save your life. That's, that's who Christ is. He's our only hope. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.